Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Incomparable, number 662, April 2023. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and before we start the show, I just want to thank today's sponsor, Omni Consumer Products. You guys know OCP. They provide support and management services in markets traditionally regarded as non-profit like hospitals, prisons, and space exploration. But OCP says good business is where you find it. And remember, they care. They do care a lot. Now, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to praise the one, the only, because as everyone knows, there are no sequels, spin-offs, or remakes of this movie whatsoever, Robocop from 1987, written by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner, directed by Paul Verhoeven and starring Peter Weller and Nancy Allen. And joining me to override our prime directives today are Erica Ensign. Dead or Alive, you're podcasting with me. <laughs> Moises Chuyan. Nerds leave. Oh, very good. And you just heard him there uh, earlier, Steve Lutz. I'm very much looking forward to talking about this movie because I like it. Hey, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I am amazed, absolutely amazed that we hadn't already done this movie on The Incomparable. Uh, I, I just assumed that we had and I'd forgotten about the episode and then... I don't know why, but it came to me to look it up, and I, I sure enough, I checked, and I was like, oh, we've never done it. That uh, presumably means that somebody doesn't hold it in extremely high esteem. Well, mm. well, possibly, yeah, but I don't know. It's just kind of, for me, it's such a part of the cultural landscape that, I don't know, it kind of, it sort of, it baffled me a little. But, I mean, let's kind of get into that. Let's have a, a it's going to be difficult to talk about this movie without spoiling it. And obviously, it's so old We've got to assume most people listening have already seen it, but for the sake of anybody who hasn't, let's do a pre-spoiler round of kind of opening statements and talk about how we first saw the movie and our relation to it and that relationship to it and that sort of thing. Uh, so, Erica, let's start with you. Where did you first see it? I'm pretty sure I watched this uh, in college or in university for school. Um, it was one of my many film classes, and I don't even remember which class or why it was that we were watching it. I suspect it probably had something to do with uh, the, the the framing of the um, having all the commercials and all that kind of uh, corporate media stuff. And I probably had to write a paper on it that I have thankfully blocked out <laughs> since then. <laughs> but uh, being a science fiction fan, I enjoyed the movie for many other reasons than just the the ads and stuff, although that that kind of stuff was cool. Um, and I think I had I had already known of the movie quite a bit before that, even though I hadn't seen it until I was in college in the '90s, because. As you said, it is. It was just sort of part of the cultural landscape, especially with uh, movie fans and science fiction fans. So I had already heard people quoting the, you know, I'd buy that for a dollar. And for some reason, like, it seems like every household has their own sort of movie quotes that they return to a lot. And Clarence Bodiger, You Are Under Arrest, was just a line that I have heard a 
billion times. And I don't know why of all the lines in this movie. Wow. But it was just one of those things. (laughs) Right. That's an odd line to quote from this movie. (laughs) I have odd friends. Let's just put it that way. Um, So. So, yeah, I kind of just knew a lot about it and then rewatched it a bunch of times because it was fascinating and entertaining and interesting. So I've I, I don't know how often I've seen it, but I honestly, when you put up a poll to to be on the podcast for this, I was like, man, I just watched this movie like three months ago because Stephen hadn't seen it. And I showed it to him for the first time. And I was like, well, I don't mind watching it again that that quickly uh, to be on a podcast and, and talk about it again. So so here I am. Yeah. It's if you have not seen this yet, it is still worth watching. It holds up in a lot of ways. Um, it's in, in some ways uncomfortably so. Yeah. And in some ways, it's like it's it's interesting watching a movie that is about the police force in which the police are the heroes. <laughs> uh, it, it's a little uncomfortable in this day and age. Um, and I think it was for a lot of people in that day and age as well. But I didn't know because I was a clueless, white, privileged college student. Um, but yeah, so it's still it is still a fascinating thing. And as Moisa said, there are a lot of ways where it uh, it seemed so prescient that it's uncomfortable how right it got some things. So, yeah, definitely it, worth checking out. It really is. I'm amazed that Stephen hadn't seen it as well. That's crazy. Eh, don't be surprised. His his record for viewing <laughs> things is like, if it's common, probably not. If it's super weird and rare and British, yeah, he probably saw it. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Moises, what about you? Uh, I I, uh, I alluded to it uh, in the pre-show, but this movie was shot in Dallas, where I grew up, uh, when I was very young. And I also saw it when I was far too young, like when I saw the Police Academy movies and various other things. Um, I, you know, in, in early elementary school, I don't know that a lot of the um, social things completely landed for me, but growing up in the household that I did, um, where, you know, talk of fascism and, and that sort of thing was, uh, you know, a, a, a big uh, a big part of my upbringing as a, the son of a Cuban refugee. Um, I, I think a lot of its themes landed for me in different ways than did other kids who also saw it too young because RoboCop was one of those movies of the 80s and early, uh, you know, early 90s, thanks to uh, videotape. Um, you know, of that time when people were discovering things that uh, kids were discovering it earlier than they should because seeing edgy, violent movies, I mean, that was cool. That was a thing that you Mm -hmm. were, you know, forbidden from. And so that's absolutely what you would go over to the kid whose house in the neighborhood um, where their parents were absent and didn't care what you were watching or what you were doing. Um, And you would watch, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street movies or RoboCop. God bless the latchkey kids. Right. (laughs) Right. So they provided such an education for the rest of us watching it earlier. um, You know, some of some of the some of the very clearly satirical and intended to be satirical stuff landed for me and I got it. And my relationship with the movie has only grown over time. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into this more. I, I think what is most interesting about the movie is the social constructs around it where it is an alternate reality that the absolute wrong people adopted the absolute wrong things of as trying to, to forward them as actual reality um, and and justification for uh, the kind of assumed stances people have on the the roving rape gangs just, you know, wandering the streets that we need to milita- militarize our police to gun down. Otherwise, those horrible, totally real 
uh, roving rape gangs of punks are just are, are going to wreak havoc on everything. Um, the other aspect of this that, that isn't spoilery is having grown up in Dallas, it's hilarious seeing them go to OCP headquarters for the first time. And that's literally Dallas police headquarters, or at least the old wow. Dallas police headquarters building. Um, the building they use for Detroit, the Detroit PD uh, precinct um, is like a former like industrial garment factory that got converted into a hotel that I've stayed in now hmm. uh, in, in the um, in the first big chase between the van and the and the patrol car. If you have if you have any familiarity with the Dallas skyline, you can very clearly see Reunion Tower, the tower with a ball on top that rotates. Mm-hmm. You can see that in the background. They pass Texas Instruments buildings. Um, they don't do a lot to hide the fact that it's Texas in in various shots where they couldn't have really easily uh, done anything other than paint a giant sign or something. Um, I mean, why bother? Because clearly in the future, Detroit is going to uh, mimic Dallas in its architecture. Mm-hmm. So there we have it. it incre- it'll be incredibly brutalist. Yep. Uh, it'll look like a bombed out hellscape. And, and to, to quote the opening of Zombieland, um, which mentions the, the actual uh, hometown of mine, uh, a suburb of Dallas, Garland. Uh, in Zombieland, um, Jesse Eisenberg's voiceover says, it may look like a post-apocalyptic hellscape, but that's just Garland, Texas. Um, <laughs> it, similarly, uh, yeah, Dallas Dallas in the late 1980s does a great job of looking like a, um, a near-future, uh, crime-ridden, um, broken-down, busted uh, thing that, that looks like it really could use some fascism to clean things up. I wonder how much of that is just Verhoeven going, ah, it's America, they all look the same. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, I think uh, location-wise, the, the filming incentives were there, and they could get the kinds of locations they needed, and they could spend the money they needed to on the go-motion, uh, you know, stop-motion stuff, and effects stuff, and the suits, and the makeup, and all that, and that's, that's just where it was cheap to film. Yeah, no, it's the reality of filming, yeah. Steve, what about you? Where did you first see it? Um, you know what? I actually don't recall exactly when I saw RoboCop, um, but I definitely came at it from kind of an odd direction. I remember um, in 1987, when I was in my mid-teens and was very much in the target audience for this movie, um, thinking that it sounded kind of dumb. I don't think the title did it any 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 great shakes because <laughs> RoboCop just sounds kind of silly and it, it sounded like your standard uh, late 80s action movie and I'd seen plenty of those and then the name just sounded kind of goofy and I was like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll miss it. Maybe I'll catch it on video later. Um, and then somehow I ended up seeing RoboCop 2, which I guarantee you it exists because I rewatched it last <laughs> night. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I ended up seeing that in the theater. I, I, and I don't know. I must have been roped Wait, into it. Wait, so by you somebody. saw that before you'd seen Robocop I did. One? Yes, oh, I did. Wow. Wow. And uh, and I remember seeing it, and I was like, you know what? That was a very dumb '80s action movie. I think it's like 1990, but close enough. Um, and, but it was enjoyable enough. I had fun. I, I actually liked the brutalism of it. And uh, and I, a couple years later, probably, I finally caught Robocop on video. And there was enough, I guess, distance between that and my viewing of RoboCop 2 that I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty good, too. It seems a little different, but that was enjoyable as well. Um, yeah, so um, in, in retrospect, I, I hadn't seen RoboCop until a couple nights ago for probably 25 years, and I oh, don't wow. think I'd seen RoboCop 2 since it came out. 
Uh, so I, I had it in mind that, you know what, I, I like Robocop a lot, and I also think Robocop 2 is pretty good, and it probably has a has an unfairly bad reputation. So just for the heck of it, I rewatched 2 last night, and oh no, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not good. No, it's not. It's not. Number 2 is it's, not uh, unjustly maligned. <laughs> no, I mean, it has its moments, but, it's, uh, but uh, it, it, the tone is so completely different from what uh, Verhoeven was going for, and it's all over the place. It's a mess. But we're not here to talk about RoboCop 2. Um, point being, though, that, uh, that I now recognize that RoboCop is a masterpiece, and uh, 2 is not so great. So uh, welcome, Steve. Welcome. Certainly an odd way to get there, but uh, yeah. but I got there. You but that's funny it. what you say about the name, because by all accounts, uh, Hollywood's reaction in general to the script was pretty much the same. The moment, including Paul Verhoeven at first, the moment anybody heard the title, they went, oh, that sounds dumb. That sounds like some silly kids B sci-fi movie. I'm not interested in that. Um, and yet it never changed because... Um, as, um, what's his name? Ed Neumeyer said, I saw him say in an interview, it's on a special feature on the special edition DVD. I think, uh, he says like everybody wanted to change it, but nobody could come up with a better title because it literally <laughs> tells you what the movie is. Sure. You can't, you can't beat a title that tells you what the movie is, you know? I'm glad they kept it because yep. the goofiness kind of goes along with the, the, the tones in the movie. Yes, yeah, very much so. So I was a mid teen same as you when this came out i was 14 going on 15 when it was released in the us i'm not sure about the uk because back then we often got movies you know several months after they were released in the us um what i do remember is that everyone i know saw it and loved it it was an 18 certificate over here which means this may have been the first movie that I snuck into underage. <laughs> uh, I'm not actually sure if it was the first, but I certainly did. I remember I did see it in the theater, no question. Uh, All right, so you're going to have to explain the 18 certificate to those of us on this side of the pond. I mean, that literally just means you have to be 18 to see it. Simple as that. Can you go with a guardian or parent? Nope. Nope. No, okay. we don't so have that. So that is slightly different than the R rating. We, we, yeah, we don't have those ridiculous things where you can't see this unless you're a, an adult. Oh, unless you are a child who's got an adult with you, that which is absurd. <laughs> um, no, 18 just means you have to be 18. And I wasn't. <laughs> well, I think I think it bears mentioning in the same breath that I think the movie that you saw, I, I, I was going to, I was going to that. Know the, yeah. I used to know the rating and and censorship history of the movie better than I do now. But did the UK get the uncensored director's cut that yes. in in the US was rated NC seventeen? I was going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. We got the what is now known as the director's cut, but at the time was just oh. the theatrical edition for the UK because the. British censor board, and this is remarkable because normally it's the other way around, but the British right. censor board actually watched it and got the context and said, oh no, actually, it's pretty clear in context that this is cartoonish and this is meant to be funny and satirical uh, and therefore, you know, we'll let it go through without any cuts. Uh, whereas the American censor board, yeah, or ratings board, I should say, um, it had completely the opposite reaction. And yes, the version that you guys got over there for the theatrical is actually, I mean, it's not markedly different, but it, I was quite shocked when I saw the changes, when I saw what had been cut, because, and Verhoeven's talked about this in interviews, it kind of lessens the comedy and the satire a bit, because it just makes a lot of the violent scenes feel more like regular violent scenes in movies. 
Um, whereas in the director's cut and the version we saw here in the UK, they are so over the top and so drawn out that you can't help but go, oh, okay, this is obviously a parody. This is obviously satirical and kind of taking the mickey. Um, so yeah, I, I find that whole thing quite fascinating that we got the more violent version. That's it may be the only movie where that's ever happened. And now I'm really curious because I don't think I've ever seen the director's cut. I just watched whatever they had on Amazon Prime and I assume it was the theatrical release. So I'm not if it, sure if, actually. If it if it had a rating if it had a rating, then you saw the US theatrical cut. If it was unrated, then that was the director's cut. Um it, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to know. The, the differences Honestly, I mean, for me, it, in in overanalyzing them, it's something that that can change the meaning of the movie. Um, but for me, it, it it more than anything, it lessens it, it it lessens how over the top it is. But that isn't to say that it, that the violence isn't still over the top, even with the cuts. Um, in the long history of of U.S. censorship by the MPAA, I'm sorry ratings advice because we don't censor things in the united states we make advice that people have to conform to um if they want their movie released um even even with those cuts it it doesn't change the underlying meaning of the movie but uh, to to the point uh brought up by by verhoeven and and neumeyer and everybody associated with the movie and dozens of home video releases that we've all bought seven of um it, it um it 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 doesn't fundamentally change the severity of what's going on. It just screws with the precise. Inter- I mean, it's 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 a re-edit from the worst kind of studio interference imaginable, which isn't just somebody in a corner office. It's, it's somebody in a corner office who doesn't even work for said studio and doesn't care about the outcome of the movie. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Was, they weren't made. You know, none of these cuts were made for artistic reasons. It was purely just to lessen the the uh, uh, perception of the violence i say i find them a bit strange uh, also because one of them uh, actually this is kind of semi spoiler territory but one of them one of the cuts actually denies us seeing an incredible model an amazing prosthetic uh which it's only really within the sort of modern age where you can freeze frame and you know step by step go through a frame that you might even realize is a prosthetic uh because it's so good so yeah that was a bit of a shame but Anyway, I still can't figure out which version I saw because I'm in Canada. So it says well, 18 we, plus. <laughs> when we get into the spoiler stuff, we'll we'll, uh, we'll get Good. there. And uh, yeah, we'll I'm looking at a out. website with the differences between the versions here. And it actually is pretty, pretty minor. It, it is minor. But like I say, the effect is the effect is more, yeah. you know, marked than than it sounds on paper, yeah, it, I think. It, it more comes down to when you've seen the unrated director's cut, you see what they cut and you go... That's what they, that's dumb. I, yeah. What was the point? Um, to your point, actually, uh, about sort of appealing to kids, Moises, the other thing, of course, with Robocop is that it was, there was so much merchandise of this movie. It was merch the hell, uh, like, to appeal to kids. So many toys and models and stuff and comic books and what have you. Not to promote a, a long dormant, um, dearly departed, much missed uh, podcast, but in the episode of Unjustly Maligned, where I talked about Alien 3 and how it was the first Alien movie that I saw and that it was relentlessly marketed with toys for kids for a movie that was absolutely not for kids. Same thing happened with RoboCop like in, in the comics world and in the sequels that don't exist world. Uh, Frank Miller became involved in the franchise and yep. there was this RoboCop versus Terminator thing. And it was it was the Reagan Thatcher era of 
give kids toys with guns to shoot the the bad guys in black and white uh, narratives about good guys and bad guys. And Robocop became so explosively popular with those of us who weren't of age to properly watch it that the studio went, oh, well, I guess we need to just we need to get this in the toy aisle. Somebody call Hasbro um, because we need to we need to fit this into 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 a mold that is a parody of what this movie was satirizing. Frank Frank Miller was involved as early as uh, RoboCop 2. He wrote the script for that. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. It's well, interesting and he wrote when those you, RoboCop ter- versus Terminator comics as well. It's it's interesting when you watch the the first and the second movies back to back and I've never actually seen the third movie but I understand it goes even more in this direction but I, I, uh, I'll, are, I'll let you understand that you should never see the I, third I'm movie. I'm curious <laughs> about it now though cuz I just found it's out so that Fred bad. Decker was the director and I was, I yeah. I love Monster Squad and I love Night of the Creeps but I I I know what he would do with RoboCop 3 and I know it would be very very bad but it's interesting watching like even even though 2 is very violent and has a lot of dark stuff in it it also kind of has that feeling like they're trying to do kind of an ETsque sort of thing like with funny jokes that the kids will enjoy and it's that, that's part of why I think the tone is so off in that is because it, it feels like they're sort of trying to pull it towards more of a kids action movie kind of thing it, it has yeah. like a real vibe a real last action hero vibe like the worst parts of last action hero <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said the worst parts <laughs> I, I, I hate I hate I hate that we're talking about Robocop too but while we are I'm going to talk about it um, yeah let's those, not talk the, about it too much yeah. we are here to talk about the yeah. first <laughs> the, the but I, I, I think it does inform uh, in interesting conversation about the movie itself because it's it's where it's where this really interesting thing became perverted into something unrecognizable um it it, it when when what this first movie does and does so well and could stand on his own gets turned into the commodified well how can we turn that into a sequel and how can we make a bunch of toys out of this um it uh, it, it 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 became unrecognizable so quickly that it it was difficult to remember through all of that marketing how uh, purely straight ahead, stone cold good this first movie is. Uh, where you know I, I made fun of the you know poorly disguised Texas shooting locations, but um, it is it is really an a pretty unimpeachable classic of its era when it comes to the craft and filmmaking and writing and and dedication to the bit that is in there. Um, that what came after it is even more sad because of how good this is. And, you know, you go to the remake and it's, come on guys, they, they tried exploiting this. Uh, this is not going to work. And sure enough, the the remake didn't work, um, because it completely lost ground of what this was. This whole thing is an object lesson, right? The whole franchise is an object lesson in why you shouldn't try to franchise everything. And I know this was an early version of what we now think of as franchising, but the first movie, to your point, as you said, is so well-constructed and so self-contained that it was only ever going to result in, you know, bad things to try and make sequels and spin-offs and, the, and, and the prequels, ending's perfect. Have you. The ending exactly. is the perfect That's place to leave this story off. It was only while re-watching it, and I have seen this movie several times over the years, but I hadn't seen it maybe for about 10 years until I watched it for this episode. And as I was re-watching, I remembered how much this movie taught me about pacing. Like there are things in this movie and things in the structure that I still think about today when I am writing 
stories. And I remember very clearly when I was 15 years old, kind of picking apart and watching it on VHS years later as well, over and over, picking apart the structure and the pacing of it because it is so well structured and it all fits together. And there's so many smart choices, both in the script and in the direction, which deviates a little from the script, but actually a lot less than you might think, especially for somebody like Verhoeven. Yeah, my notes literally contain the phrase, this movie is paced perfectly. Um, mm. And it, it's in a certain way, it's it uh, it's very clearly an 80s movie because so many 80s movies are sort of episodic. You know, you can you can find sort of individual chunks that make up. This is chapter one and this is chapter two. Like, uh, you know, in this, you've got a segment that's just the character and the setting introduction. Then you have like a whole middle section that's the making of RoboCop. And then you've got the Robo's first night on the beat and so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's uh, and everything commercial breaks yeah and of course the commercial commercial breaks breaks, (laughs) which are frequently the bookends for those segments and and make a very clear delineation between the two the the different segments um and and i think the thing that's most remarkable about this is uh it's an hour and 42 minutes which is by today's standards super compact you know nothing gets made that's under two hours uh anymore but it it doesn't feel like there's anything missing it feels like the exact amount of content is in this movie for what it's trying to do i mean it's just magnificent so yeah let's let's sound off the spoiler horn figuratively if not literally as it were and say yeah if you haven't already seen robocop beware from now on here be spoilers and you really should go and see it i think we're all pretty much in agreement on that mm-hmm. um I'm, unless you really hate ultra violence then stay away except well, okay, this isn't sure. really that yeah. ultra violent anymore by today's standards actually that's true yeah yeah you see as much blood and gore well, as you if do you hate ultra violence you're still you know? you're still gonna hate robocop that's probably that's true, true. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The, so the first thing I'll say post-spoiler, and this is going way, way into the movie, but I only just found this out reading up about it this weekend. Apparently, the original script, when I read the original script, I realized the original script did not have a connection between uh, Clarence Bodica and Dick Jones. Like they, oh. were, they were both in it, but they were not. Bodica did not work for Dick Jones. And that was a studio note. It's so like probably one of the best uh, studio wow. notes ever Blind was them saying, et cetera, hey, why don't you connect these two? Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, as the as the corporate parent financing this, you should uh, you should have the corporate uh, organization be uh, corrupt and in league with the criminal. <laughs> yeah. How ironic yeah. that the corporates get it right in this movie. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, talk about like, uh, re- you know, an example of a really good exact note. Um, so. Yeah, we, we've talked sort of in, in generalities. Let's get more specific. One of the things I wanted to, that I always struck stuck with me about this movie, and I think strikes everyone when they first watch it, even nowadays, I would think, is those commercials. The the news broadcasts and the satirical commercials with the, the smarmy doctor selling you a, you know, a, a replacement <laughs> heart. And, the yeah, Series and 7 the Sports Newcom- Heart by Jensen. Yeah, and the Nukem board game and the the SUX six thousand and all that, and they're great. 
but they're also like so much satire from the 80s. You watch them now and you're just like, that actually yeah. looks kind of cute that's and familiar. old fashioned. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I played the game. There's a board game called Nuclear War, which I played a bunch of times sure. and it's basically the same thing. I just, I love Casey Wong and Jess per- Perkins to death. The talking heads on the news broadcast, Media Break or whatever it's called. Yeah. And, 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 and one of them is, so uh, is Liza Gibbons, uh, yeah. known to US audiences for, for Entertainment Tonight. That's Liza and Gibbons? Other that's, yeah, that's Lisa Gibbons. Gibbons. I didn't that's recognize Lisa Gibbons. her. She's so make, made up. But, oh, man, the, the persistent wan smiles when they return from a story about neutron bombs in South Africa yeah. or dead cops. Mm-hmm. It's just like the same sort of doped well, up expression. Well, the Mexico war is going. Uh, <laughs> boy, that was uncomfortable. And the intonation as well, how they deliver the stories is just so spot on, so accurate. Good to luck, Frank. News broadcast. <laughs> And like just just you. speaking of the pacing, just jumping into it, like it doesn't waste any time. You get like a a, a long shot of the city, right? And boom, right to the title card, and then straight on into the newsreaders, and you're like, okay, I kind of have or already have a feeling of what kind of movie. I am watching just in the first few moments of it and then onto the commercials. And then like uh, suddenly we find out, oh, the police are privatized. And it's just like, yeah, that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, this is this is funny and uncomfortable. Well, it technically starts with the Orion Pictures logo, which just makes me sad. Um, (laughs) But then, yeah, that that cheesy 3D title swooping in over the Detroit skyline with the dramatic musical swell. It just screams, yes, this is the 80s. You are watching an action movie from the 80s. <laughs> the the thing the thing that the movie doesn't do is take a break to go, oh, here's a title card explaining things. It just immerses us in the world, shows us what the world is like, and you get a feeling for what this world is as you are just thrown directly into the deep end and you you don't feel lost at any point. That's what I was going to say, because the world building in this is so, again, talking about like not wasting any time. Nothing here is wasted. All the world building is done like diegetically. It's done economically. It doesn't spoon feed you. That news broadcast, I mean, starting off with a news broadcast is kind of a cliche. It's kind of a clam. It's a bit cheesy. But again, the way it's done, because it feels so accurate, because the delivery is so good, it doesn't actually give you loads of expository stuff. It's all hints, things like the mention of the neutron bomb and unrest in South Africa and the president giving a news conference in space. You know, it's not delivered in a way that kind of says, so now listen while I tell you about this thing. And hey, did you know the president's gone to space? You know, it just gives you the facts as a news story would and relies on you to keep up with it. And it does that throughout the whole movie. There's so much that is not over-explained Right. Uh, which helps keep it feeling trim and tight, but also, I think, uh, suggests that it respects the audience's intelligence more than people dismissing it as a schlock B-movie would anticipate. And, and none of it's ridiculous. The, the news broadcasts and the commercials, they're funny, but they're not so far off of you know what you would expect to see that right. it's, it's not just camp. like, oh, this is, this is just silly. You know, it's, it's recognizable. Like, oh, yeah. I could totally, I could totally see this dude selling the the series seven sports art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in the same in the same way that you know sketches on a bit of Fry and Laurie, we're not that far off of reality. Um, but they they took seriously the ridiculous assertions of of the powers that be on either side of the Atlantic. Um, you know, pushing people in in the direction of of what this movie embraces as its reality. Um, it, yeah, it, it's. Uh, 
it's it, it's wild to see things that in this day and age people say with a straight face that what we need yeah. are, are bipedal uh, murder robots patrolling the streets um, because crime is just way too crazy. Hey. Uh, trust us. Progress marches on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that opening scene in the precinct is I've got that noted here as like that is a model of economy because you've got. I mean, that line when he walks in and says, you know, I'm transferring from South, from, uh, South District and Reed, the sergeant, says, oh, nice place. We work for a living down here. What a brilliant <laughs> line. That yep. just tells yep. you everything you need to know about the sort of place that he's walked into. You know, we learn that it's a rowdy district. We that learn there's unrest in the ranks. Yep. <laughs> right. We learn that they're contemplating a strike. We also learn that Murphy isn't phased by any of this, that Lewis is tough, that cops wear body armor, which, of course... From here in 2023, <laughs> their armor actually looks pretty weak compared to what modern cops are wearing. But at the time, well, felt like I mean, it's, oh my it's God, because they now like they've figured out the how, to, how, to, how to slim down those like bomb disposal unit vests that the cops in this movie wear. And then also the speech about uh, the, uh, you know, this cop has died. Donations, you know, will be given to the family, give them to, to so-and-so as usual. Just like, yeah. boom, you get Delivered it. Delivered to the right. as usual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, they have stated that this is like the 30th cop to die in the last couple of months or whatever at Boddicker's hand. So that's to be expected. No, I just wanted we, we had sort of started to talk about the world building and I just wanted to, to briefly talk about it a bit more. It's really interesting what they've chosen to do here because um, this is presumably supposed to be some time in the future, right? Right, but, but they don't specify a year. They it's don't. Near. And it's. If it is a if it is the future, this is not a very ambitious vision of the future. No, I mean it's, they can. It's very they can, cyberpunk. They can build sophisticated <laughs> robots, but everything else is basically the same. It's just crappier. I mean, there's yep. lots of cathode ray tubes. There's very few computers. It's it's hilariously over the urinals in the OCP executive bathroom. The big scientific or the science science fiction sop yes. there is stock tickers on those old LED signboards like they have outside of elementary schools. Yep. I mean, it's it's really more like 1987, but with robots. You know? 1987 retro futurism that says, uh, look, we tried some stuff. It didn't work out. Um and this was the future we got, and it's not that far from now. Uh, so don't get your hopes up, and it, it could be this bad. It's almost like they said, well, we could do a bunch of Blade Runner-y kind of stuff, but nah, it's just going to distract from the well, point. So. I mean, it, that's actually, you know, stepping away into the real world. That wasn't entirely a creative decision because uh, Ed Neumeyer did kind of want to. He was inspired to write this movie after working on Blade Runner for a few days mm. uh, because he was an exec at the studio at the time. They were filming on the lot at the back and he just basically finagled his way onto the crew. Um and he wanted this to look like Blade Runner as well as, you know, sort of having uh, and having Robocop walk around in a sort of Blade Runner landscape. And the producer said, John Davison basically said to him, you can have the streets or you can have the robot. Which do you want? <laughs> we can't good afford choice. both. <laughs> yeah, Make the proper choice. choice. But it was the right choice. Absolutely. You know, the getting the suit right 
right. was you know more important than anything and again and if they you hired the right of, guy for that I, oh. I this is the first time i ever saw the credit for who designed it and when i saw it i was like oh yeah that's clearly rob botine he's he's a genius <laughs> yeah yeah a, a genius who apparently did barely spoke to verhoven throughout the filming they clashed <laughs> so badly they got really? along so poorly yeah that they just hardly spoke during the uh filming but the the end result obviously but to be fair you know, there's a lot of people have that reaction to Verhoeven and have had that reaction to him over the <laughs> years. He kind of seems to rub people the wrong way. But, uh, the, you know, the results do kind of speak for themselves. And, of course, Phil Tippett uh, doing the stop motion on Ed 209 as well. You know, another legendary special effects guy. And it really shows, you know, the Ed 209's animation, I remember at the time, you know you could yes you could tell it was stop motion but it was it's really good stop motion and even now it's about as good as stop motion can get yeah it's it's really superb i mean it almost still works today it doesn't but it almost does it's very close (laughs) well especially in the character of it those little touches like how is uh one of his toes judders Mm -hmm. when he falls over that sort of thing and the the turtle screaming when he falls down the stairs is just oh the sound design has a lot to do with that too i mean they've Chosen to make him like roar like a lion at points and scream mm-hmm. like some sort of a squeal like a baby. Well, yeah. I mean, d- design yeah. elements that 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 carried through and were inspiration for the way that they they set up the mech in Metal Gear Solid. Um, I mean, the the most obvious lift from this movie in a similarly mega popular thing was Metal Gear Solid going, "We're going to do a, a bipedal T Rex ish robot thing that roars." And, and speaking of the sound effects, you also have the sound effects just on the RoboCop suit as right. well. Yes. Yeah. Like absolutely sell the thumping and the whirring and the wheezing. And oh, it's just it, this movie the, the, sounds fantastic. The thumping, especially, yeah, when he's especially when he's being introduced and you don't see him clearly, but you hear the thunk, thunk mm-hmm. of his feet is uh, what, you know, remarkable atmosphere in the sound design. Uh, and then, yeah, all the little clicks and whirs as he moves. In the in the modern superhero movie thing where people's, you know, super armored suits come out of, you know, uh, like a pocket watch or something <laughs> and have no weight to them. Uh, Robocop has the exact opposite thing going and it's it's why it looks so good and why it sells so well is it it sells the weight it sells. Um, it sells the the actual uh, existing in physical space thing that I'm not saying CG visual effects can't do, but it is. It, but they often is, choose not to do. Well, choose not to do or run out of time. And it, like it's it's not on the artists doing this. They're given impossible deadlines by people who go, we'd rather not build a suit. Can we have Steve with the computer, um, you know, computer it? Um, and that's that's what that's what I think makes <laughs> those movies fall down. Mm-hmm. It's not a lack of potential talent on the on the side of the visual effects people. But there's always this rush now. So that they can't do the stuff that if you're doing something physical on set like they did for RoboCop, well, either you build it or it doesn't get shot. Although they almost didn't have time to do it here as well. Part of the reason yeah. why uh, Bettin and Verhoeven fell out was because apparently a few months into the design, Verhoeven basically sent Bettin off in a completely different direction and insisted that he do something that looked actually more like uh, Japanese manga giant robot stuff. And it just didn't work. And it took them like three months for Verhoeven to admit, okay, no, we screwed it up. This this isn't going to work. Go back to what you were doing. But by that time, they'd wasted three months of uh, design and building time. And so Bettin was way behind schedule and allegedly literally delivered the suit to set on the first day that it was supposed to be shot. 
Like the first day that Weller put on the suit was the first day he was filmed in it, which is crazy when you consider how well he moves in it. Like his bodily acting in this film is just incredible. That's the most amazing thing I think about that design is that it can be moved in and it looks looks like it's not terribly uncomfortable. And, it was. Uh, it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was. But I mean, it, it's it looks realistic, and yet it's still capable of of enough motion for him to act in it. And yeah, yeah, I, I did want to stop briefly and say, yeah, Peter Weller's uh, performance in this is really, really remarkable. Um, he he's being told basically to to do the robot for, for an hour and forty <laughs> yep. minutes, yeah, and uh, and to sell it and and make it look like it's realistic and. Uh, and at the same time, bring that sort of pathos of being, you know, this human that's been locked into this nightmare scenario. And uh, boy, does he pull it off. It's it's wild to me that uh, it, and it's like some of it is that great sound design, because, of course, you know, when he turns and there's a whir, that certainly adds to your mind going, oh, yeah, he's a robot. But but uh, it, that's got to be very, very difficult to pull off. Um, you know, for well, he trained with a mime for months, apparently to sort of you know to get these movements right but the problem was he did that without the suit and then when he got in the suit he realized everything that he'd practiced to do he couldn't do in the suit which again makes it even more remarkable that it actually pulls it off and that it looks good it's just it's incredible delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery starring academy award winner russell crowe now available on digital Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Speaking of the, the, the weight uh, that the sound implies and you know his movements and him being a human you know trapped in this thing it actually i just now sort of put together there's the the scene in the movie where he they have just worked on him and the uh one of the women doctors is like we managed to save the arm <laughs> like no 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 we don't we don't want that arm yeah. lose it and they put him back to sleep and i'm thinking now like if they had kept that arm it probably would be a lot less useful than the other arm because there is so much weight to this this suit it's all made out of metal is a human arm actually going to be able to stand up to like lifting a ginormous gun or whatever else he has to do? So, you know, I guess Miguel Ferrer was right. Yeah, no, as yeah. gross as it is, that's clearly the right decision. Yeah. But that does have that that does scene does have like the best line satirically in the in the movie, which is, well, he signed the release form when he joined the force. He's, he's, he's legally the dead. Form. We oh, can do pretty much God. what we want. Yeah. yeah. Lose the arm. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the uh, the thermograph scene where he goes to the mayor's office, you know, there's the hostage situation mm. and he's walking down the corridor and looks through the wall. You get the thermal vision of the people walking around. Well, remember, this was made, filmed in 1986. Like, there was no such thing as, you know, thermal vision or certainly not for the kind of budget that this film had. So they filmed that by putting the actors in coloured body stockings. like. Oh. Their body wow. stockings painted with colors to look like thermograph images and then filmed it with a polarized lens. And once you know that, if you watch that scene, you can tell, wow. right? But you can only tell when you know, you know, it's, it's 
so brilliantly done that if you don't know, you just assume that it's some kind of special effects or something. But actually, it's far more lo-fi than that. <laughs> wow. I, just, I love those kind of cheap, uh, you know, what can we do? How can we achieve this effect without spending billions and billions of dollars? And Steve with his computer hasn't even been born yet. Yeah. Steve. <laughs> it's true. Friggin' Steve. <laughs> that guy. Oh, man. Um, the... We have to talk about that, the famous Ed 209 scene, partly because it is the scene that everybody focuses on and talking about the sort of cartoonish oh, uh, not, style of the violence and what have you, not, but not, also- not the, not the cool scenes that we see of TJ Laser, noted blockbuster <laughs> TV <yeah>. show. <laughs> I love TJ Laser just cracks me up. Um, but one of the things, again, at, coming back to this theme, it's so well done in terms of storytelling because, and pacing because we've all seen the poster. We know that this film is called Robocop, the future of law enforcement. And Dick Jones stands in front of the door and says, I present to you the future of law enforcement. Uh, and the door's open. And of course, you may th you think it's going to be Robocop and it's not. It's the Ed 209. Just such a brilliant little bait and switch for the audience to kind of introduce a new character, but also catch you on the hop. Uh, and then also show you, obviously, that this character is completely useless <laughs> but also so iconic that voice which apparently was just a temporary voice that's the producer john davison again he just did wow. that as a temporary voice and it was so good that they kept it uh and yeah and then obviously the scene with him shooting the guy 50 60 times after saying i am now authorized to use necessary force <laughs> it's like one guy with a handgun Oh, just and I love that he falls back onto the model of Delta City as well. Did, you know, and again, they don't make too much of it. It's just there. You see it. You know, relying on the audience to pick that up, and then that yeah, final they don't, line. They don't. They don't cut to a slow mo shot of him falling on it again right. and again. Yeah, just double and triple underlining. Hey, dummies! In case you didn't get the symbolism going on, and then that final line when like this smoke's pluming out of ed 209's guns and somebody shouts somebody want to call a paramedic <laughs> <laughs> oh just it's so good it's so good and, uh, and it's followed by up by them sort of coolly discussing this eh, this is a setback this is yeah. gonna be a setback and I'm how like you know the big boss the big boss is upset but he's not so much upset that they just lost an employee and a man has died no, he's 50 upset million in interest yeah, exactly. Like this, this project that we had so much money in is a failure. It clearly doesn't work. That's what I'm annoyed about. So, you know, somebody needs to do something about it. Yeah, he's brilliant as well. Um, I can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. He's that, Dan O'Hurley. He's the guy. That's yep. him. And yeah. I know yeah. him mostly from uh, Halloween 3, the season of The Witch, where he is superbly oh, wow. creepy. But he plays that character so well. I mean, obviously, he's only on screen for maybe a total of like six, seven minutes, including, you know, this and then at the end. Uh, but he makes his mark on the film in the, in that short time. And then um, the... Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm terrible with names. I've forgotten the actor's name who plays Dick Jones. Oh, Ronnie Cox. Ronnie, Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who... Up until that point was known for playing really, really nice, normal guys and then comes along and gets offered this part 
and by all accounts he said in interviews since had like more fun than he'd ever had on set in his life (laughs) playing this terribly terribly dastardly evil man and then of course went on to be a villain in loads of other movies in the 80s (laughs) i don't think i've ever seen him in anything where he's a good guy i've always only seen him be the sinister kind of creep but this was the first one well blame robocop dick jones is a great villain too I, i i really enjoy the touch of realism that they made him kind of old and unhip like he's got that line where he's trying to intimidate Bob Morton and he says, I used to call the old man funny names, iron butt, boner. <laughs> yeah. And he's like expecting like Bob Morton to be shocked at the, at the, uh, what, he, I mean, he calls him buddy boy while he's trying to intimidate him for crying out loud. Yep. Yes, Bob Morton. I use such rough language as iron butt. Oh no. <laughs> I am edgy fellow kid. That whole sequence shows you sort of how disconnected everybody in this this whole company is from the reality on the ground and what normal people are are actually living. And, you know, the, it, it really does a great job of sort of selling the corporate atmosphere. And it at the time, I'm sure the first time I saw this, I was kind of like aghast at the idea that, you know, they have this presentation about how, you know, we've we've done a whole bunch of work in, in areas that are were formerly known as nonprofit, like hospitals and prison and space exploration. And I'm watching it now and just going, ugh, ugh, yeah. ugh. Um, because yeah, it was uh it was uncomfortably prescient at that moment and you know later you get the line like there's no better way to make money than free enterprise and i was just like i need to put my head down for a little bit now <laughs> i like them going down in the elevator and uh, uh robertson says to bob morton it's too bad about kitty and the response is that's life in that's the big city, in the big city. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just get shredded by a giant robot in your boardroom it's just how it works shrug and this is all very deliberate on ed newmeyer's part this was a big part of what he wanted to do with the script he's talked about how uh you know in the 80s on wall street things like the book of five rings which is for heaven's sake a book written for samurai about how to kill people more effectively was considered you know a a text that everybody on wall street had to read in order to be a sort of great corporate raider and stuff and how ridiculous that is which it is transparently ridiculous but it still goes on today and that whole yuppie culture and the primacy of money and profit above everything was a big part of what he was trying to satirize and not expose exactly, but, you know, get, kind of get across with those scenes. And I think he did that yeah. brilliantly because, yeah, they are so uh, ridiculously unconnected, as you said, Erica, from the real world, from real people's concerns. Uh, so well done. Well, he fixed it. So mission accomplished. Good job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, while we're on Bob Morton, I just want to throw a huge shout out to Miguel Ferrer here for his his doing his best William Atherton as giant eighties mm. a hole. <laughs> he so is good. so good in this. He just you just make every movement. It's like this is the most arrogant prick in the entire world. <laughs> <laughs> Miguel Ferrer also uh, he he and um and and Bill Mooney. Uh, grew up like Hollywood kids and and Ferrer like got got known for roles like this but like they were they were like Hollywood nerds who I mean they, they collaborated on comics for Marvel um, like I, I love that 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 he is a a nerd done good 
who ended up being in so many things like RoboCop that are beloved by his people, as it were. Um, because he, like, he gets, he gets the tropes, he gets the archetypes that are at play. And, and I think part of why he's so good in this role and in so many others within genre, um, is that he, uh, he, he, he loves it as much as we do. And he takes it seriously for that reason. And so, yes, there's like some over the top stuff. Um, but he, he, uh, not to say that he didn't work hard in every role that he ever did. Um, but you can, you can see this added like edge of energy that he put into the, the nerdier speculative fiction stuff that he got to work on. I, I love the little details he puts into his performance too. Like there's a scene in the boardroom where they're sort of panning past everybody and they, they go by him and there's this little subtle sniff, which, mm -hmm. you know, his yeah. nose is bleeding 24 <laughs> hours a day. And it's just this totally like random little sniff he threw in there. But it's like, yeah, that's exactly what he would be doing right now. Mm -hmm. Honestly, <laughs> one of my only complaints about this entire movie is the fact that when you have the scene with him and the two girls at his obnoxiously fancy home and he's sniffing cocaine off of the one girl's bosom and he turns around and there's no powder on his nose. And I was like, there should be powder uh, on his nose. No. That's the only no, time no. that I was pulled out no, of the no. movie. Erica, Call that's, IMDb that's, goofs. That's just a sign that he's good at what he does. <laughs> Hey, no, no wasted uh, cocaine, man. It all goes in the nose. One of the little touches like that that I love from him is after the shooting in the boardroom, um, when they're all sort of, you know, when Ed 209's been powered down and everybody realizes it's safe, when Johnson, uh, his, you know, sort of deputy, has been kind of pressed up against him and the way he just kind of shoves him off and gives him that kind of get away from me look <laughs> is just a lovely little bit of, you know, non-verbal acting, just a lovely little touch that says so much about his character. Can we also talk about, uh, and we'll get to, I know we all want to talk about You Know Who, and we'll get to him in a moment, but I think we need to give a shout out to Nancy Allen as well, because this, again, was a role that was kind of against type for her, to the point where she had her hair cut eight times, apparently, for this role. In terms of like getting shorter and shorter, because she was known wow. for obviously having these lovely long locks uh, and being this sort of screen beauty. And uh, Verhoeven said, like the first thing he said to her was, "You're great, but cut your hair because I want Lose you the to hair. look. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want you to look feminine." And she cut it, and he's like, "No, not short enough." And she eventually cut it eight times till it got to that really short wow. length that it is in the movie. And she also put on weight by stopping smoking. So that she huh. didn't look kind of wow. svelte. That's dedication. And it really huh. is, yeah. But she's look, great. You signed the release form so when you joined the production. We can cut your hair any way we want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can do anything you want with you. But she's so great in it. I mean, she doesn't have a lot to work with. She doesn't have an awful lot to do other than be his psychic, apart from when she rescues him, uh, you know, from the shooting at the bottom of the OCP tower. But what she has and what she does with it, I think is so good and just kind of uh, such great character work to get across a good character uh, with so little material. Yeah, it's interesting that this movie is as as progressive as it is in terms of like it's really not as sexist as I expected it to be when I went back and watched it a couple of months ago because I mean in in a way it it does sort of fall into that trap of girls being like a character type like from Dungeons and Dragons you have your group and there's one yeah. girl um and that's not but the thing is here it's not because Lewis is written in any way as not like other girls she's just a cop it's never referred to like 
like, oh, my God, she's the girl cop or anything like that. It's just more the casting of the rest of the movie. Like, I, I appreciate that we actually get a decent number of women as the doctors and scientists who are putting together RoboCop. But when it comes to the rest of the cast, it's, uh, you know, you have a woman as a secretary. You have the two, uh, you know, smart is so sexy women doing a bunch of cocaine with Miguel Ferrer and not a lot else. But it's never... It's, it's sort of the kind of baked in sexism that you're just going to get in any movie in 1987. And it really, I think, rises above a lot of the rest simply because it's they don't make a big deal about the fact that Lewis happens to be a woman. She just comes in and she's a really tough cop because she kicks somebody's ass right there in the middle of the precinct and then gets introduced to her new partner and everything's cool. And it's it's not a big deal. And that was that was very refreshing because I was a little bit worried when I went uh, to to rewatch it again a few months ago. Well, you'll be happy to hear that in RoboCop, RoboCop 2, they broke the glass ceiling and finally introduced a horrible woman in the boardroom, too. So. True. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, that opening scene where she kicks that guy's ass in the, uh, in the, in the precinct is just, I mean, it's not very long. Uh, and it, again, kind of a cliche to introduce somebody like that, but it's so good. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was 15 watching that for the first time, I kind of fell in love with Nancy Allen a little bit. <laughs> In that scene, when she when she takes off her helmet, I'm like, oh, yeah. it's a woman! Oh my god, it was just so good. That's and, like the end of Metroid. I mean, in, in terms of like putting it putting it in its historical point, you know, this was her breaking out of being oh Brian De Palma's ex wife who was in Dress to Kill and Blowout, and now and you know she she's uh, she's and Carrie, you know, kicking forget, ass and, Carrie, and taking names. That's that's the only thing I and knew Carrie, her from yeah. prior to yeah. this. Yeah, ah. where she is a very different character. Yep. Getting her to break out like that uh, has often been, it, it, you know, it, there, there, there are tropes about it now of going, oh, we're just going to make, make her, a, you know, a tough, strong woman who like punches somebody twice when we introduce her or something like that, um, th that has not been done well in other movies is done incredibly well here um, because it, it, it isn't, it isn't gratuitous. It doesn't go on and on. It, it isn't underlined by really bland dialogue going, wow, she's really the toughest cookie in the Detroit PD or any garbage like that. Um, she no, in just fact, the chief is just like, it's another day with, with yeah, Lewis kicking somebody's day. ass. <laughs> oh, there's, there's Lewis kicking somebody's ass again. Gosh, when you're done Lewis, screwing you're around with your, uh, your, uh, your suspect, but you get over here. <laughs> it's great yeah. stuff. It really is. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the villains then. And obviously Clarence Bodica, uh, who has to rank as one of the greatest uh, action villains of the 80s, I think. Partly because, again, talking about playing against type, I mean, I don't know about Kurtwood Smith in terms of sort of characters he played, but just his look, his appearance, the fact that he's wearing glasses goes he's against... not what you would expect, for sure. Right, no. so many of the sort of stereotypical uh, gangster villain types of the 80s. In fact, when I, mean, I think back on RoboCop, I usually sort of replace him with Michael Ironside. I had forgotten it was Kurtwood Smith <laughs> I, when yep. I watched him. <laughs> Funnily enough, they actually wanted to play RoboCop originally, but he was he what? turned it down in any way they thought he would have been too big. Look, look, here's here's how you know Clarence Boddicker is is a tough as nails, takes no prisoners kind of guy. His gang not only includes Ray Wise, but it also includes Paul McCrane. Um, right. <laughs> So. See, and that's the problem is I get my ER, ER actors mixed up. <laughs> hey, Ray Wise is brilliant in this. He, so again, talking about roles that have very, very little and yet making the most of them. He is ah so good. But Clarence Bodica, man, I mean, apparently he was written to have glasses to resemble Heinrich Himmler. 
Wow. <laughs> Which, yeah. But, sure. To me, he always looked like kind of... That sounds of... like a very Verhoeven thing to do. <laughs> right, right. But to me, he always looked like William Gibson with attitude. Like, he looks like a nerd. Are you saying Gibson doesn't have attitude? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Extreme he's a, Gibson. He's obviously a psycho, but he's also obviously smart. And it's just such a... It makes such a nice change, at, again, at the time in the 80s, to those sort of boneheaded uh muscle-bound bad guys then he's absolutely not but he is completely ruthless and again smith just does such a great job i think with that character the uh, spitting blood on the sergeant's desk blotter mm. apparently that was improvised that was uh th that was smith's own idea it was like you know just for a bit of extra attitude and again it's an iconic moment yeah he's he's really good in this and i I only really know him from that 70s show beyond this, and I had never yeah, made same. the connection before reviewing it this time. So I was like, oh, no, it's that guy. Wait oh, a minute, wow, really? I'm having a disconnect here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and like that whole cast of weirdos that are his crew is just, I mean, uh, the laughing. I cannot handle the laughing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from uh, Johnson, I think it is. Ugh. It, but uh, Does it hurt? <laughs> which i think may also have been improvised actually because that's not in the script during that scene i ah, think joe i think in the joe. in the script he just says something like i'm out of ammo uh and that's when bodica steps in and says okay i'll finish this and uh, like things like things in the modern day are so well documented like they're they're on-set rewrites and that sort of thing you know beyond things that are ad-libbed but this comes from a time where it might have been ad-libbed on the day. It might have gone into a script revision that isn't like the the finished uh, official yeah. shooting script. You know, beyond there having been various different versions. There was a version of the script where uh, Murphy didn't have a family at all. Um, Verhoeven had it had it cut out. And then um, similarly to his wife interceding and going, no, 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 you should do this movie. Uh, she said, no, 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 he does need to have a family. <laughs> and and uh, and it, it completely changes the movie. Thank um, goodness for Verhoeven's wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Um, Sounds like he's a lot to put up with in general. So good for her all around. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Talking about the, the Murphy death scene. So here's where we get to find out which version Erica saw. Hmm. Uh, so yes. The, I mean, first of all, you have that thing where he blows off Murphy's hand with the shotgun in mm -hmm. an absolutely brilliant special effect. I remember being, everybody just went at that <laughs> when we saw it in the cinema because it's so well done. Yeah, just um, like liquefies. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty yeah. gnarly. Well, well if you watch it. If you watch it back now, again, like sort of with the benefit of freeze frame stuff, you can see that what they essentially do is drag the hand off at high speed. They pu literally pull the hand away from the prosthetic arm at uh, high speed. And then, you know, you've got the squib of blood going as well. But it's it's obviously it's only a few frames long. So the effect is brilliant. But then later on, right at the end, when he's on his knees and uh, Emil says, hey, he's still alive. And Clarence steps in and goes, all right, fun's over and points the pistol at him. In the theatrical version, you get a very brief shot of uh, Peter Weller just kind of staggering a little bit and his hair flops around. And then you cut to sort of, to Bodica shooting and that's it. And you don't, you don't see sort of any more than that. Uh, and he doesn't and they... say, hey, he's still alive in that version either. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't know about that one. Um, I, I didn't hear that. But in, in the, the director's cut... In the director's cut, you get a full, like, three to four second shot of 
uh, Weller on his knees, screaming, kind of leaning backwards. The camera moves around him to the back, and then you see Bodica shoot, and you see the back of the head blown off. And that's the massive prosthetic, or dummy, I should say, that I was talking about earlier. Like that that's thing the version is, I saw. Right, so that is the director's cut, yeah. But that is brilliant, because again, unless you freeze frame and, and watch it sort of step by step... You won't even realize that it's not Weller. It's a really, really well done dummy of him that they rigged up so they could animate the jaw, make it move, make it sort of shake as if it was trembling with fear, and then obviously have the the explosive and the squib in the back so that they could uh, blow it out when Bodica shoots him. But it's it's such a brilliant effect, and to think that that wasn't even on screen in the theatrical version, what a wow. waste. And now I've got to go find the director's mm -hmm. cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. It is really well done, honestly. Although it does yeah. seem weird that they would use a, a guy for RoboCop who got shot through the brain. Does it seem like the ideal candidate, really? <laughs> yeah, we can, uh, we can replace that part of the brain with uh, computer chips. Bob Morton sure. needed to move fast. Yeah, maybe that's the part they wanted to take out anyway. Yeah, they said they're mm -hmm. going to wipe the memory anyway, so, you know. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, maybe it was the bullet through the brain that actually allowed him to keep as many memories as he did and let him have some dreams. Right. Oh, yeah. You're going to take him offline because of a dream. Uh, <laughs> another great scene from for a, um, the other sort of villain and big special effect thing we have to talk about, I guess, is Emil going into the toxic waste. Yes. Tank. If you're going to take yeah. away only one image oh. from this film, toxic waste Paul McCrane yeah. is the likely oh, candidate. God, it really is. I, I think it's the melty fingers that really do it for me. The, the fingers what? just hanging off of the bones. Oh, that's oh. horrible. <laughs> it's Absolutely great. horrible. It's the Cronenberging of of Paul McCrane that uh, that really that really that really works so well. Uh, where Verhoeven went, hey, can we do something really gross? Uh, <laughs> and when he gets hit by the car they... and just liquefies, oh, it's beautiful. Splash. Exactly, yeah. The the makeup is terrible. And by the way, that is written. If you read the the fourth draft of the script, is the the one I read, which has stuff in it that didn't make it into the movie. But Emil melting. I mean, it's written slightly differently, but it, the description is there. It clearly was in the script. But yeah, that effect, the makeup is so good. But then, yeah, driving through him and he just disintegrates. 80s <laughs> audiences were just wild for toxic waste. It's, it washes was ridiculous. up the windshield. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. Really not that different from his character arc in Fame either. <laughs> I, I actually have no recollection of what happens in Fame. I just thought that sounded good. Uh, it, it, it was another of those moments as you say it's one of the moments that everybody remembers from the film and when I watched it certainly you know me and my friends I remember all just being grossed out and horrified and also elated uh, yes. and just overjoyed at that scene that's the it comic is just bookiest so gross. moments in except in the, you know what i don't think everybody remembers it because i completely forgot about it oh, I, wow. that's i don't really? yeah because you know why it has nothing to do with the movie it doesn't have anything to do with the plot it's just it's just to me it feels like a weird off note like suddenly we're in like the toxic avenger like a toxic waste <laughs> can happens to just be sitting there and this guy turns like no i'm watching a science fiction movie about a future corporate dystopia where they turn the police into robots like why am i suddenly getting weird toxic of like 
just toxic waste not acting the way actual toxic What's waste What's more does. dystopian just, than toxic waste? Uh, I, I don't know. To me, it felt very <laughs> cartoony is the right word for it. And just yes. to me, it was kind of like an off note. And yeah, I laughed, but I, f- I forgot about it after the first few times I saw it. And I had forgotten it again, even though I watched the movie just two, like two months ago. And I was like, oh, right, this part. And yeah, so I, I thought, it, it's fine. I appreciate that a lot of uh, a lot of fellas loved it. But for me, it was it was <laughs> It was just a nothing. I'm not coming out in, in, in defense of it necessarily, but uh, Erica, you say that's not how toxic waste works. How do you know <laughs> that in this near future, they didn't come up mm. with specifically body swelling and liquefying toxic waste? <laughs> it's a new fair. kind that's, that's just coming to market for a specific <laughs> set of needs that no one has. <laughs> it's great, by the way, that old Detroit has so many old factories where they can just keep all their toxic waste. They don't need to worry about uh, digging well, bunkers. Well, Steve, Steve, you gotta you gotta have a good surplus of factories so that you have somewhere to make sparks and smoke. It's a, well, it's a steel no, foundry. It's the same one. It's the same yep. steel mill. And the fact yep. that they get it back there, but this time it's the bad guys coming for the good guys at the steel mill the, in a complete reversal of the opening, I think is a, mm-hmm. a lovely elliptical touch. But sure. I Agreed. will... I will defend the toxic waste moment because what Change it my does. Mind, Anthony. Well, because what it does, and maybe I'm reading too much. Eric all with her hands crossed behind a folding table. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think this is if you look at that whole climax from the moment the bad guys turn up at the steel mill, basically, and uh, you know Murphy and Lewis are obviously setting traps and waiting for them. It is quite intense lots of explosions lots of gunfire not an awful lot of dialogue it's a fairly sort of just intense long action scene and what the toxic waste scene does is give us a moment of levity and relief in the middle of that scene just before it gets really intense again before you get leon dropping the girders on robocop and you know clarence uh fighting him and what have you it's it comes just before then uh, and gives us this, as I say, this moment of levity, this moment of comic relief before that intensity. So you've got intensity at the start ramping up, then a moment of relief, and then the intensity rebuilds again towards the, the very climax in the, uh, yeah, in the sort of water-bound quarry. And so I think actually from, the, from a pacing point of view, from a just a kind of editing craft point of view, it is... It does belong in the movie and it does sort of earn its place. I will agree that it it absolutely does that. It, it, it I hadn't thought about it in those terms before in terms of sort of like the 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 swells and, and ebbs of the intensity. But I would have preferred that they achieve that end in a different way. With that doesn't take other me out of the movie waste. quite so much. <laughs> I just like, like super gross stuff, frankly. So. <laughs> I mean, there's so much super gross stuff you can do with like, I don't know, molten steel falling on somebody or like, you know, somebody getting perforated by a bunch of those steel bars that Lewis was sleeping on earlier. Or like, there's a lot you can work with there. And just, I don't know, to me, toxic waste feels like an easy out. That's that's all I'm saying. It didn't look too easy to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, I love that this sort of... Uh, the keening noise that he makes while he's stumbling around it's so creepy yeah it is really well played um speaking of I, speaking of a meal i just want to go back to the scene where he is um at the gas station gassing up and there's a shell attendant who's you know reading a book and, and going yeah. to to college uh simply because the actor who plays that shell attendant is the son of my elementary school art teacher oh wow oh, so, uh, yep. awesome <laughs> glenning in erica form that yeah, is fantastic 
so yeah i mean the climax again like i said i love the kind of elliptical nature of it being back at the steel mill but for for good reasons like you know the the lazy silly way would have been for the bad guys to keep on staying at the steel mill oh, uh, yeah. which you know which Thank would God. have been silly but we've all seen movies where that sort of silliness happens i mean and, the true. the 80s and 90s especially in hong kong were built for that people right. hanging out at disused steel mills it was just a wednesday afternoon Right, but the fact that they don't do that, the villains have yeah. moved on, and so the good guys use it as their base, and then the villains come for them there. I, as I say, I just think that's a lovely parallel. I think it's cool. Yeah, a great way right. to you know sort of have the climax and finale happen at the the same place where the the death before the resurrection, as Verhoeven puts it, um, takes place. Uh, although the yeah the quarry with the water at the bottom is kind of where does that come from? That doesn't feel like something that belongs in a steel mill, and we don't see it in the opening section there at all. It's a bit odd, but it does make, obviously, for that brilliant uh, visual of Robocop getting completely pummeled by the steel girders that Leon drops on him, which, again, is another great effect. You know, if you, again, if you watch it frame by frame, you can see that it's clearly a dummy that's being uh, crushed by these. I think they were just painted wood. Uh, these girders, but it's so effective. He looks, and because of the sound design, he looks like he's just been completely flattened by this stuff. Um, and Ray Wise is pretty surprisingly good with a conveniently placed construction crane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that he knows how to use it, yeah, he's just like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Maybe that was his job before this, you know, dystopia shut down all the steel mills. That's right. That's why he's so bitter. Yeah. That's why, it's why he had to turn to crime. Mm-hmm. He's not called it's Wise. It's a tragic tale, really. <laughs> He's really the tragic center of this film. It's Ray Wise. Oh man. Um, and then yeah, obviously the the other brilliant bit of foreshadowing is when you get the data spike uh, uh, midway right. through the movie to sort of access the data mm. and then using it as the the weapon to take out Vodka in a really again sound design really kind of visceral, gross stabbing. Uh, when he pulls out a chunk of flesh yes. afterwards. He's I just, love, oh. love the huge splatter of blood that drops onto Robocop's chest when he pulls that data spike out. So they don't show the actual spiking. I suspect that probably would have been removed if they had. But just this giant clump of blood and tissue that falls out and goes splat is is as grisly as you could possibly get. Is that right. not in there in the... In the director's cut because i thought i remembered seeing it no it is so in the director's cut you get the the spike and you see him get stabbed but it's kind of partly off screen and then mm -hmm. he pulls out the uh pulls out his hand and you get the gush of blood right. in the theatrical you see those actions but it's all done at a distance i believe it's done in sort of medium and long shots rather than that close-up so that's gotcha. the the difference there, but it's it's you still effectively get the same effect. Apparently, they originally wanted him to uh, shove it through Bodica's eye, um, mm -hmm. right? But they decided that actually there was no way they'd get that past the ratings board. So why even bother going <laughs> right. to the trouble and spending I waste the, money? the time on the effect? Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, and then of course, after that, you go straight to the the boardroom. You know, Dick, you're fired, and the terrible terrible infamously terrible blue screen falling dick jones uh it's pretty bad it's it really is dreadful it's even even in 1987 i remember thinking that is really just awful 
I, I forget about it immediately because then they've got that quick scene of Johnson smiling and giving the thumbs up, which just <laughs> slays yeah. me. Just kills me. Yeah. He's just so happy and, and cheerful, and he's like, "Hey, good job, we yeah. did it." And the, and yeah, the old man obviously, what's your name, son Murphy? But what I love about that whole thing is it's so short. Again, you know, we're talking about the uh, the economy. What's the epilogue, really? I mean, the the the. Yeah. the RoboCop's last stand, as I call it, is probably really the climax yeah, of the movie. Yeah, And action. then you got to clean up the, uh, you know, the loose end of having Dick Jones still around. And it's an economical and perfect, I think, in terms of being short like that. Right. And you even you get that comedy that moment where he takes out the Ed 209 uh, guarding the building downstairs, which again, <laughs> yes. is just done really quickly. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. basically like an old school Dalek that isn't able to fly. Right. Like, oh no, stairs, <laughs> gasp. But there was... And it's super dumb that the legs keep moving after the head's blown off, but it's it's worth it. It works, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was originally another epilogue after that. I mean, you're right, Steve. I think, you know, we can consider this to be the real epilogue. But originally there was a whole other scene after this with like more news reports and Lewis recovering in hospital and RoboCop back out on the streets in his car patrolling and somewhere there's a crime happening. And thank goodness that they didn't use any of that because ending it where it does is just perfect. I mean, that's the sort of thing that has audiences on their feet and applauding. Right. Murphy, and he smiles, and then it's just, boom, RoboCop. Yeah, again, the the economy and the sort of the tightness of this movie is incredible. Like, not a moment is wasted. Um, yeah, kudos to whoever did the editing, because it's, it's a fantastic job. It really is, yeah. Uh, like, no, yeah, no denouement. I've got my notes here. Bang, no denouement, no epilogue, just smashed the title. One hour, 37 minutes, no messing around. Now, like, the, the thing that, uh, you know, the second and third movies exist, the remake exists. Uh, the thing that when I found out there was a sequel, not knowing there was a sequel when I was younger, um, was I, I like I like the what ifs of the self-contained movie on its own where, um, you know, Murphy tells Lewis, oh, they'll fix you right up. And I'm like, they're going to make Lewis a RoboCop. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they man. fix everything. Oh, wow. Yep. That's going to be so cool. That is a good and, one. And then, and then, and then they, you know, they made the follow-ups and, and the things that I thought as, as the audience who loved it were the interesting what ifs, not apparently the interesting what ifs, uh, that the people in charge of the studio cared about at all. Well, all they cared about was getting a sequel out as quickly as possible. Newmeyer talks about this where like, you know, they wanted him to work on the sequel, but they wanted it done so quickly that he was already by that point committed to doing something else. And he was like, uh, yeah, you'll have to wait. I'm doing this other film. And they're like, no, well, tough. Goodbye then. Uh, and he says like that was his first real exposure to uh, Hollywood studio politics. And he said, bearing in mind, this was a studio that was happy with everything I'd done. And they still basically said, well, sucks to be you then. We're going to go and do it without you. Because um, that's how it works. I, have we talked about the score yet? No, we uh, have not. No, and we should because Basil Polidorus' score is, is very fantastic. Good. Yeah. It's it's so good and and so great that the the bits of it that are reused in the sequels um, are like this music is so good. They don't Why? reuse the iconic theme in the second one. Yeah, like it's they, never they there. The they, they don't use the theme. They like they 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 went they they went. How can how can we use something that sounds kind of like the music in the first one, but that isn't 
remotely as good. And it's, it's like you're, you're, you're drinking, you're drinking, you know, Hey, can I have a Dr. Pepper? Yeah, here you go. And, uh, and you're like, wait, this, this is Dr. Thunder. This is not Dr. Pepper. What, what, (laughs) what? Uh, like you, you can just tell that it's store brand score that is, is meant to evoke, uh, what, what there was. And for a minute you go, Oh, this sounds kind of like it. And, and that's, I I don't know. I, I keep going on about the sequels, but it's, you you want to give them uh give them credit for trying that that is completely unearned um and but the point uh, is that the the, score to the first movie is really really good and yeah Mm -hmm. they should have absolutely used those motifs yeah the weird the weird like cover interpretations of uh, of uh, that they use that, that tries to sound like this it just i mean it just doesn't work um, it's one of the many reasons those movies don't work. Um, but it, yeah, it, the, the what, what Polidurus did on this movie, I mean, it would be echoed in games like Metal Gear Solid in loads of like military stealth action games and that sort of thing. Um, you know, beyond, you know, the the Terminator 2 score stuff that, that those draw from, uh, you know, th- this this became part of the 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 lexicon of, uh, you know, militarized action uh cinematic storytelling and what's funny about this theme um well first of all i love that they hold off on that iconic theme until 30 minutes in when he drives out on the beat for the first time yeah and if you want to take a scene that's basically just a dude driving around a city and nothing else totally static shot and make it feel completely epic that's how you do it because <laughs> I mean, they really could have titled it the RoboCop Drives Around theme because it's almost exclusively <laughs> used just when he's going from place to place in his car. And it's so good. Um, but yeah, I never really looked up. I, I, I didn't know what uh, Polidorus had done previously. Um, so I finally went and looked it up. And he did both of the Conan movies. And ah, when yep. you think wow. about it, that da, 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 is very much a swords and sorcery theme with some metallic clanks laid over the top of it. Yeah. And it works so well. So it made perfect sense to me after I heard that. But I was like, wow, that's an interesting, uh, interesting parallel. There. Well, and it's that combination. It, that combination is very deliberate of the, yeah, as you said, the sort of the, the clinks and clangs and the synthesizer bits with the sweeping orchestra to kind of mirror the man and machine theme of the film it's uh you know, i saw him mention that you know that was a very deliberate choice but you're right it works so well and but yeah i didn't know he'd done the conan things but that makes absolute sense i mean you can totally picture him taking down a, a you know some sort of a monster with his sword <laughs> yeah, to that snake that monster yeah without well, the metallic clanks well maybe some metallic clanks i mean so, bringing up fantasy makes me think you know a couple little things that i you know i i don't think are like you know big huge topics uh, but I, as as much of a uh, you know a, a police you know uh, near alt future um, science fiction ish thing as this is like there are elements of fantasy there are elements of of monster movies and you know RoboCop dreaming is is this cybernetic Frankenstein thing he I mean it's a Frankenstein story of a sort um, you know there there are those um, you know. Really, the some of those mythic, you know, poses are very Conan the Barbarian, uh, you know, Sumerian, you know, guy with a giant sword. It's just this guy has a giant gun that comes out of his leg. Um, it, it's 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 wonderful seeing that language cross over uh, in in so many respects in this thing that is like, oh, he's a, he's a cyborg cop in Detroit and he drives 
you know, a beat up old police cruiser and is is the most sophisticated killing machine on the planet. Um, I, I love that marbling in the in the text of the movie. And it's it's something that I don't think gets enough credit here in the long view where people would just go, oh, yeah, it's great. And it influenced this and it's this and this is what it is. Um, I, I think those are some of the things that got lost, I think, in the franchisization of RoboCop itself. Oh, that's, you know, that's a tale as old as time itself, isn't it? Is uh, people being influenced by stuff that's on the surface and not looking down into the the layers of text beneath it. That happens with so many things. Um, one thing that is all surface, though, but actually works in terms of the world building and the layers that we were talking about that we haven't mentioned yet that we really have to is Bixby Snyder. And I'd buy yes. that for a dollar, which mm-hmm. is so... Uh-huh. I, I love those segments because we're never told what it is. We're never actually, there's no explanation of what's going on or why it's funny or who this man is or anything, it, but it is so recognizable. It was apparently right. done as a kind of deliberate over-the-top parody of Benny Hill, which I can yeah. absolutely see. Yep. But it is so obviously like lowest common denominator, easy comedy that all the blue collar people think is hilarious. And we're just going like, why is this funny? It says so much about that world uh, and also reflects our own world that I think, I mean, you know, it's it's not even in the movie that much. And yet it's one of the enduring catchphrases from the film. To be fair, it's the blue collar men that think it's hilarious because there is the scene in the liquor store where the dude's wife is just completely nonplussed. (laughs) Yeah. And the the man is just laughing uproariously about this stupid thing. But but later, Emil is is watching it and, you know, breaks the window of the TV store in order to turn it up and hear it to laugh at it all the more. It's a it is nice how ubiquitous it is and how we see it in so many different contexts and see how many different people see it and recognize it and appreciate it. And in the case of the wife in the convenience store, don't appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny that he he has to hear the the iconic phrase. That's why he breaks the window. Like yeah. you could just watch it through the window, but if you don't, don't hear, that. I'll buy that for a dollar, then you haven't really experienced it. Properly. Yeah, you you really have to hear it in you know proper monorial sound. You know, you just need one channel for that to really ring in your ears. But it's only one dollar, really loud. Also, the genius of having that on the TV in the liquor store during RoboCop's first real takedown, when he throws the guy through the the refrigerator and then walks out, and we immediately see the shot of the liquor store couple, and then the TV says, I'll buy that for a dollar. I mean, it's the perfect (laughs) punctuation to that scene. Yeah. Yeah, the liquor store scene where he does more damage to the liquor store than the the thief would have. Well, he thanks them for their yep. cooperation. Yeah, yeah. He, he destroys the place, thanks them, and in walking away, you know, says without words, you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's almost as good as the, the delivery of uh, the the woman that he rescues. Like, madam, you have suffered an emotional shock. I will notify a ripe crisis center. Just the delivery in that is mm-hmm. so mechanical, so great. And one thing I did want to bring up. We haven't talked about Paul Verhoeven, Verhoeven himself much, other than that he's probably a fairly prickly character. <laughs> um, his, his reputation as a director is, I would say, somewhat infamous. I think the things that usually get mentioned about him are the over-the-top violence and sex. And if people are feeling charitable, they'll they'll mention the somewhat heavy-handed satire, which I think could probably be laid at the feet of the writers more anyway. But I don't think he gets enough credit for how smart his directorial decisions are. Um, this movie has so many moments where it's like, this is the the perfect choice for this scene. Um, 
like I, for instance that uh, scene where Murphy dies and we're in the first person and the screen fades to yes. black we hear the medical team they call the time of death and then for five seconds there's nothing and then the screen bursts into static as they turn on Robocop that's such a smart way to do that transition and well, that's that, I think that's that also, is in the script uh, but but I agree that Verhoeven handles it really well he does and then the, I think that also is partly the decision to hold off a bit on the reveal of RoboCop. Yes. It's actually a bummer that they put him on the poster um, because the delay of the, the reveal of the design is, is very well done. Um, and that's that not in the script. Actually cool. in the, in the script, he just walks into the precinct along with the, uh, along with Bob Morton and everybody else. And yeah, right. I, I agree that, uh, that scene where he walks in and you only see glimpses of him and through the marbled glass and then from behind and stuff is yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And just before that, he's being sort of introduced by Bob Morton, and he's walking forward past the applauding OCP crowd. And as he walks forward, you see just a glimpse of him walk by on the monitor, which is another yes. one of those great, you know, we're not going to show you everything. We're just going to tease you. And then they don't, again, show him in its entirety until he arrives at the police station a few minutes later. That was actually written to be a mirror, and it says you get a glimpse oh, of cool. Chrome. I think is how it is how it's written, but it works so much better as a TV monitor because it fits with the aesthetic of the workshop where he's being built. And it's so many great great decisions here. I think the the other one I wanted to highlight was the whole segment towards the end where he's being attacked by the SWAT team. Um, there's a sequence where he walks into the room and they turn all their lights on him on their on their cars on their they have uh, spotlights that they fire towards him and there's this sort of disorienting over the shoulder uh camera position and his head is moving from side to side as they turn him on and it just uh it gets across that like confusion and betrayal so well and then the the whole rest of that as he's being fired on and and increasingly deteriorating like his leg goes out at one point and there's a, mm -hmm. a shot from the front of him on the ground sort of dragging his leg with his hand up and there's smoke swirling around and the SWAT team advancing from behind him in this, this sort of dark shadow uh, you know, a uh, amorphous blob of gunfire that's coming in his direction. That it's it's just really, really well done. And I think that one you can lay almost entirely at the feet of the director. I mean, he knows how to how to stage an, an action scene like that and and make it resonate in ways that it wouldn't otherwise. Agreed. Yeah. And you're right. The sense of betrayal that you feel when uh, he walks out and finds himself surrounded by the SWAT team, I think is. It's quite palpable. I think it's fair to say about Verhoeven that, like, he's he has not always made good films. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't we, say. <laughs> we can all think of a few bad films that he's made, but they're always interesting, even if they're interesting because they're you know unsuccessful. Um, and I don't think anybody would say that he doesn't give it his all. You know, like even the even the bad films, it is clear that he put the work into them. And the end result may have been not great, but you, you know, you can't deny that he clearly put the work in, put the hours in and sort of you know, had, uh, shall we say, good intentions at the very least. I think he's he was a, trying a something yeah. all the time. I think we can all agree. Yeah, well, certainly we all agree here that Robocop is just, it, it's a genuine classic. It's, uh, you know, it deserves its status as one of the greatest sci-fi action movies around to the point where in, it was so innovative that at the time critics apparently like struggled to define its genre because they were so unused to the idea that sci-fi movies 
could also be satirical and funny and have you know a heart and humanity and stuff yeah it's, it's got pathos too that's the wild mm -hmm. thing like the whole struggle as he you know suddenly becomes human again yep. sort of you know he, re he recovers his humanity um climaxing in that scene where he's walking through his house and uh you see him his walking become increasingly aggressive uh, and then he just punches a hole in the automated realtor, yeah. which you kind of wanted to happen the whole scene. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's shocking to have moments like that, that work so well, as well, compact as this movie is yeah. and, and how shorthand a lot of the character development kind of stuff is. Like you can see it in some of the reviews of the time where even in the text of the reviews, not just reading into uh, the, the way that it seems like a given critic uh, was responding to something the, 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 some of them in working out, I don't, did I see what I thought I saw? Um, because it was it was such an uncommon m melding of different things and types that that was incredibly uncommon then and is more common now, or at least, I mean, even in Marvel movies, there is expected to be, you know, some criticism of the military industrial complex and like coded social allegory and everything in a thing that's about superheroes flying in the air and punching aliens in the face. But also humor and compassion. Yeah. You know, very, very important parts of Marvel movies, which, uh, you know, may not uh, this kind of, again, kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily set the template. There probably were movies before that did it, but this was the most successful movie, I think, at the time that had tried to bring all of those things into it. And I was just going to say the the real climax of that pathos that you mentioned, Steve, is actually, I think, when he's, after he takes off his helmet and he asks Lewis about what happened to his wife and kid and oh, she's like right. oh, you know they thought you were dead and uh, they moved away and he says i can feel them but i can't remember but them. i can't remember them. Oh, that's a great line that, that is punch. shattering oh, man. <laughs> so good so good i love that from that point on he's got the helmet off too i mean it's been yes. shattered at that point in in what is another great uh probably verhoven decision where he's in the ed 209 fight and absolutely getting his his ass kicked Yes, And he's at his most vulnerable. And at that moment, his visor breaks and we get a close up shot of his human eye looking out see the for eye. the first time. Yeah. So smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we've already gone a bit long, so let's bring this to a close. But uh, again, I just want to emphasize to everybody, if somehow you've been listening to this post spoiler horn and you still haven't seen Robocop, you really, really should. We've spoiled a lot of things. It, it won't spoil your enjoyment of the film. Uh, I think all of us here have seen it multiple times. I know, God knows, I have probably watched Robocop yeah. 20 times. And, it, you know, knowing what's going to happen does not spoil your enjoyment of the film whatsoever. It's, it's so still well made. Yeah. I have I, not um, seen it that many times, and I have regrets. I, I'm going to blame <laughs> Robocop 2 for that one. <laughs> I um I, I made mention of uh, of of it having like a billion special edition home video releases and as as the physical media nerd I th I think I, I think I hold the 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 physical media nerd um uh title or or officer responsibilities on on the mothership um there is a magnificent in the US and I think the UK uh, Arrow Video special edition of RoboCop that has the unrated director's cut, the theatrical cut, 
um, loads of extras that have been around for a while, as well as newly produced stuff. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we talked about this as a great film. I will, I will stand by that, which I don't think is a terribly controversial opinion to have on this network or with this audience. Um, but, but it was, it was one of the, um, the releases in the Criterion Collection Laserdisc and DVD line that, uh, that, uh, that surprised people, uh, where it was like, uh, that, uh, Jackie Chan and Supercop. What, what do you mean? You know, why, why are these among the most, uh, um, right, right. you know, influential and interesting films? And it's, it's because of what this movie does with the form that, that there is that level of scholarly academic, and I don't mean those as, as slights or, or hyperbole, um, kind of thought that has been given to what this movie did. And unfortunately it's sequels then squandered all of that cultural currency. Um, but, right. uh, but yeah, it, it is definitely worth seeing in the most beautiful, most immaculate way that you can. I think it's 4k on iTunes now too. Um, but the 4k HDR, uh, remaster of it just, it, it's, it is one of those reference quality best ones out there that since it is not hard to find as in the early days of home video, it was, it was difficult to see the unrated director's cut of it in the States. You could get the R rated cut. Um, but you had to, you know, buy a, 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 an expensive laser disc and have a laser disc player to be able to watch it uncut. Um, I love how much more accessible this movie is now, um, uh, along with all of the really cool contextual supplemental stuff that goes with it. Yeah. And it should be accessed again. You, you know, yeah. we implore you to go out and watch it if you haven't before or to rewatch it if you haven't seen it in a while, because yeah, it's, it's worth rewatching. Steve having willed RoboCop two on himself so much makes me kind of want to petition Jason to let us do a <laughs> RoboCop two and three, like double feature rocket surgery. It just might to, be bad just enough to, to, to meet those. Just, yeah. Just, count me out of that one. <laughs> just to, <laughs> yeah. just to get it out of it, just help it pur- help purge it from Steve's system. I, think. I will say if RoboCop two was completely on its own as a standalone film and did not have the legacy of RoboCop to support, it wouldn't be that bad, but I guess that's true. That's how I feel about yeah, Alien yeah. Three. Yeah, as a follow-on yeah. to to the original. Now that I've got the proper perspective, having sort of let everything drain out of my brain for twenty odd years and and watched them in the proper order, it's it's a slap in the face, really, to the legacy of the first movie. <laughs> RoboCop Two would be so great if it were called Robot Cop. The it's Return. the second movie. It's directed by Irvin Kirshner. It's got to be great, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, boy. Anyway, so I think that is a good place for us to uh, to end things. Robocop, it's a great film. You should all go and watch it, uh, as I say, for some insane reason you haven't already. And it just remains for me to thank our panelists today. Erica, thank you for joining us. Please log off Zoom now. You have 20 seconds to comply. Uh-oh. Hey, <laughs> Moises, thank you for being here. Directive 1, serve the public trust. Directive 2, protect the innocent. Directive 3, uphold the law. Directive 4, make sure the podcast is shorter than the object that is being discussed. Yeah, we failed on that <laughs> Too one. Too late. Oh, thank God there's only four directives. <laughs> yeah, good, good thing is we fired a guy so we can shoot someone and throw him out the window. And Steve, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Anthony. It's my pleasure. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go. Somewhere there is a crime happening. <laughs> and and you have to commit it. And thanks to you all out there for listening. Remember to come quietly or there will be trouble. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>